Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Okay, good morning everyone. Welcome, Sawadee Kap. Welcome to all of you guys. Nice to see all of you this morning. We're going to start with our meditation like we do each morning. And if you guys would like to chant along, you've been learning the chanting, you're welcome to do that. I would like to welcome all of you guys that are here and those of you guys joining us online. Welcome to everyone. We're going to start with the chanting, then we'll go into the breathing mindfulness meditation. Then there's going to be a period of time where it'll just be us meditating, and then we'll come out with the chanting as well. The topics that we have for today are what is gamma and how does it affect me and what is merit? These are the two topics we're going to be discussing in the morning. Then we'll take our lunch break at some point, and then in the afternoon, we'll talk about continued support, and we'll even discuss an activity that we're going to be doing and probably the field trip as well. We'll discuss that as well. So if you guys would like to join for meditation, you're welcome to. I think you guys know enough now about your body positioning and all that stuff. I don't need to share anything. So we'll just go right into it. Pivati Supatipano Makawato Sawakasanko Sankang Namami Napmurasapakawato Arato Sama Samputasa Napmurasa Pakawato Arato Sama Samputasa Napmurasapakawato Arato Samasamputasa Itipiso Makawa Arahang 
ಸಮೋ ಸಾತಿ ಸಾ ಮನು ಸೋಪಾಕವಾಡಿ ಹ್ಯಾಂಡ್ಸ್ ಅಂಡ್ ಆರ್ಮ್ಸ್ ಕಂಫರ್ಟಬಲ್ ಇನ್ ದಿ ಅಪರ್ ಬಾಡಿ ಅರೆಕ್ಟ್ Just close the eyes and start breathing in through the nose and out through the nose. Here you're just looking to establish the breath. A nice, natural, steady, consistent breath. Not forced or controlled. Just a gradual inhale through the nose. experiencing the full breath and then when you're ready exhale out through the nose breathing in and out Breathing in and out. Your breath may not match up with the guidance that I'm providing, and that's okay. This is your practice. I'm just here for guidance. You can use this voice as a reminder that whenever you get to the next inhale, breathing gradually through the nose, experiencing the full breath. And then when you're ready, exhale out through the nose. Breathing in. and out breathing in and out the sound of the breath coming into the nose or the sensation of the air moving over the skin into the nose the breath is the present moment fixate the mind on the breath the present moment breathing in and out 
breathing in. And out. With the mind fixated on the breath, whenever you notice that it moves off the breath, cut that off, let it go, and come back to the breath, the present moment. No need to observe the thought, label it, judge it, analyze it, or even try to figure out where it's coming from. Whenever you notice that the mind is moved off the breath, cut that off, let it go, and come back to the breath, the present moment. Breathing in. And out. Breathing in and out. I'm going to be quiet now and let you do this work of focusing on the breath, cutting off and letting go anytime the mind moves off the breath. You have nowhere to go. There's nothing to do. No one needs you right now. This is your time to focus on the breath. Breathing in and out.
This was a 30-minute meditation session. I've been gradually expanding them as we go throughout the week to help you guys move your meditation sessions to longer and longer periods of time. So if this felt like it was pretty straightforward, you know, not too long, then it looks like you can be meditating regularly at this length of time. If it felt like, wow, that was a real stretch, then okay, you know, keep stretching, keep moving, keep expanding. If it felt like it was just right, then you know, okay, this is where you need to be. Okay, so this was a, a 30 minute meditation session. And it also sounds like y'all's chanting is coming together, too, because I'm starting to hear it before. I couldn't really hear it. I'm starting to hear it more harmony coming through. So this is great. I saw you had your hand up. You have a question. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what you do uh, is rather than uh, have an alarm. Because what you do is you look at your clock beforehand and then you meditate and you look at your clock afterwards. So if you have a, an alarm going, typically the mind will do one of two things. It'll be sitting there thinking, is it time yet? Is it time yet? Is it time yet? Is it time yet? This is a craving, right? And now you need to let that go. So by using uh, an alarm, it's just going to put the mind potentially in this round of craving. Or the second thing that can happen is you can be really deep in meditation, getting all kinds of benefit. 
and then ing, 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 and the alarm goes off, right? So it's kind of like when you're setting an alarm, you're trying to determine the future. You're saying, okay, I'm only going to meditate for this amount of time. And you're putting a line in the sand where you don't know what you're going to be doing in the future. You don't know what you're going to be doing one minute from now, let alone, you know, 20 minutes or 30 minutes or 10 days, all this impermanence in the world. So it's better to just start your meditation. If you'd like to look at the clock ahead of time, start it and then look at the clock again when you're done. And I still do this even today about once a week because you would like to check in about once a week and just see that you're gradually expanding your meditation sessions and they're becoming a little bit longer and longer and longer each time. And you're getting to that point where it's 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. Yes, sir. I don't suggest that you do this because the mind's going to get attached and fixed to that. What you're trying to do is you're trying to train the mind that it doesn't need anything from this outside world to be content and peaceful, that you can go inward and you can maintain your peace and joy without anything that the mind's holding on to. So if the mind gets used to meditating with music, then the mind's still holding on to this thing, right? So it's best about 80 or 90% of the time to just be meditating with the body, the mind, and the breath. Now, occasionally, if you do like the gong meditation that we had, that Master V does, you know, do those kinds of things. You can kind of invigorate your practice, kind of mix it up a little bit. Every once in a while, you're coming together with a group like this and meditating, you know, but the body, the mind, and the breath, independent practice all by yourself, 80 or 90% of the time, you'd like your meditations to be that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe we can start using the mics. We've got a bunch of people online. I wasn't sure how many questions you guys were going to have, but this is good to have a little check-in on meditation because you guys have been meditating now all throughout the week. So maybe you have some questions about meditation. Uh, yeah, so in my previous ones, they all told me to actually use the clock. And since I read that, what you said in the book about not having it, it's just a little bit of a game changer for me. So I can really sort of affirm that to not yeah. have that expectation really helps. Yeah. yeah, it really does. So everything that I share with you, it's not something that somebody told me or something that, you know, I read in a book and something like this. These are all things that I know through direct experience that they work to improve the condition of your mind and get you to enlightenment. So anything that I've shared with you, either in a book or in a class or any other way, you can be confident that what I'm sharing with you is the truth. But then, like I teach you, don't believe me, right? You learn it. You reflect on it and then you practice it and then you see the truth for yourself. Like Rosmos is, is saying that, yeah, he, he stopped using the, the clock and he noticed this big difference. So you're going to notice lots of different things that are being taught in the world, but they're not necessarily what the Buddha taught and based in what would lead you to enlightenment. So if people are teaching you, you know, to have music or if you see that on a YouTube video or something, sure, there's plenty of people in the world that meditate with music but they're not enlightened. And what you're looking to do is get closer and closer to what the Buddha actually taught so that that way you can get to enlightenment because it's what a Buddha taught that's going to actually lead to enlightenment. When they get to enlightenment, all they know is what took to get to enlightenment for themselves. And then the rest of their life, they're going to lay down lights along this path and illuminate it and make it as clear as possible for anybody and everybody who's interested in getting to enlightenment. So when you're 
out there and you're seeing what all these different people are sharing, oftentimes they're not sharing it based on the original teachings of the Buddha and what the Buddha did to get to enlightenment. These are things that people told them or they started doing or they picked up here and there. So as you are learning from these books, as you're learning in the classes, all the different resources that I'm sharing with you, I'm only sharing with you what absolutely works to get to this enlightened mental state. But then don't believe it. Learn, reflect, and practice, and then you'll see the truth for yourself. You have a question, sir? Yeah. I have a question. Maybe it's a very basic one mm-hmm. uh, regarding the focusing the breathing. Mm-hmm. So do we have to consciously like, set the the breathing rhythm or observe the natural breathing pattern. I never know what to do. Sure. You might need to do a little bit of breath work in order to get your breath established. I know I did and other people do. What I can do is I, since we have this mic, I can breathe into the mic so you can hear kind of the pace of my breath. And not that your pace is going to be exactly the same because our lungs are different, but you can kind of see how I slow the breath down. It's very slow. And there's a gap in between the inhale and the exhale because by slowing the breath down and your mind being fixated to the breath, it'll slow the mind down because oftentimes in the unenlightened state, the mind is very rapid, right? It's overactive. So if you are very conscious about your breath and then your mind is fixated to the breath, then you'll notice that the mind will slow down. So if you guys would like, I'll breathe into the mic and you guys can hear the pace of my breath. Would you guys like to hear that? Would that be helpful for you? Okay. So I'm going to put this mic like right up to my nose and then I'm going to do my breath of meditating. See if I can get it up there. And I think you guys at home can probably hear this too. Okay, there we go. All right. Okay, so I'm gonna start. I'm gonna start with an inhale. a 15 20 second breath with like a you know two or three second gap in between Uh, but i needed to work at that when i first started meditating my breath was very shallow so what i did is outside of meditation i just sat here you know with my eyes open and kind of worked on my breath and kind of really gradually developing it so that it can be nice and consistent but slowed down rather than kind of this short rapid breath what the buddha describes in his teachings is he says 
If your breath is long, know that it's long. If it's short, know that it's short, meaning fixate your mind on the breath. But you will notice that when you elongate your breath and you really slow it down, and then even observing those gaps in between the breath, this will really help to slow the mind down. And what I noticed when I first started doing that is there was a little bit of a fear of not getting enough air. So when I slowed down the breath, I was kind of uh, fearing that I was going to die, right? Particularly in that gap, when there was a gap and I had to let that go, I had to let go of that fear and realize like, no, you can actually hold your breath for a pretty long period of time without dying. So this helped me to slow the breath down, to slow the mind down, to help eliminate some fear in the mind about death and all these kinds of things. Yes, that's another thing people will teach you in meditation sometimes to count. This is, so what that's doing, what what the music's doing and what the counting's doing, what the clock's doing, what all these things are doing is whatever thought you would have had, you're just replacing it with the counting, right? So sometimes in Thailand, people teach you to say, Puto, Puto, this is the Buddha in Pali language, you haven't let go of anything. The mind hasn't been trained to let go. You're just holding on to the counting. You're holding on to the puto. You're holding on to the music. The mind is just replacing whatever thought it would have had with something else. So your mind hasn't truly let go. And what you're looking to do is train the mind to actually let go. So that's why you're not interested in counting or that's why you're not interested in observing your thought. That's why you're not interested in having music or beads or anything like that. Just the body, the mind and the breath and bring the mind to the breath. And this can be challenging. It's a very simple instruction to do meditation this way, but it can be very challenging for the mind. If you're doing meditation properly, you'll probably be exhausted for the first three to six months as you're meditating. The mind will be really tired because it's a lot of work. And that's why you oftentimes will be falling asleep and and very sleepy in meditation for the first three to six months. There's a lot of pollution in the mind. The mind's doing a lot of work. So you can get really sleepy in meditation, get really exhausted because you're doing so much work. So all that stuff, you like to clear everything out. Um, so the, the, the chant, the, the question for those of you guys online was no mantras either. So the chanting that we do, some people might call that a mantra, right? But that's part of it isn't meditation, right? You're not meditating when you're chanting, you're using the chanting to ease into the meditation. But while you're actually meditating, you're not doing anything with the mind other than bringing it back to the breath and just focusing it on the breath. But of course it will move off right? Even when you're enlightened, it's going to move off. So your goal isn't to eliminate the thoughts. Your goal is to train the mind to let them go so that you have that mindfulness, that you're aware that it moved off the breath. You have that concentration that the mind is focused and clear on the breath. And then when there is a thought, because there's going to be one, even when the mind's enlightened, that you notice it right away and you bring the mind back. And this is going to take a long time to be able to do that. So you're training the mind to let go because it doesn't want to let go. It wants to have all these rambling thoughts and all these miscellaneous thoughts. And you're not interested in it doing that. But when it does do that, because it will, you just are gaining discipline and control. It's kind of like if you had a dog on a leash and the dog kept pulling and pulling you and pulling you. And I wouldn't suggest training the dog this way, but you'll understand is what you're doing is you're yanking it back. You're yanking it back and you're yanking it back. And eventually the dog's just going to sit there. It's not going to keep pulling you. 
after you keep yanking it back and yanking it back. It's the same thing with the mind. Over six months, one year, two years, three years, as the mind keeps pulling you and pulling you, you keep yanking it back and yanking it back. So now, not only in meditation do you have that ability and that discipline and control, but in daily life. So now in daily life, when you're walking through the mall, when you're anywhere in the world and you see your mind longing, yearning and pulling you, you can yank it back and yank it back and yank it back. And this is how you get rid of your cravings in the moment. And then you're doing all this proactive things like meditation and generosity to train the mind to let go as well. But in the moment, using that eightfold path, whenever you see your mind craving or longing and yearning, you pull it back. Or whenever you see those bodily sensations arising associated with discontentedness, you cut it off. You pull the mind back. This is how you gradually cut back this wild bush of craving. If you think about craving like a wild bush that is just growing and growing and growing, you're cutting it back and cutting it back and cutting it back and cutting it back. And eventually you'll uproot it and get it out of the mind. But that's going to take many years. If you could get the other mic. With the breath, I'm curious as to if that's just another distraction, like like a mantra, like it just feels like, um, I guess part two of the question is I'm also curious of the definition between or the difference between mindfulness and meditation. Okay. So the breath is the present moment because when you breathe, that's right now, right? The breath is like a post or a pillar. And with that same analogy, if you have a, a rope tied to that post or pillar and an animal is connected to that rope, as the animal pulls and tugs, the post is the anchor point that the animal keeps getting yanked back to as it keeps pulling. So when you're breathing, that breath that I was using, that's your post, that's your pillar. And now when the mind tries to pull, you bring it back to the post or to the pillar. What was the other part of your question? The difference or the definition of difference between mindfulness and meditation, because I Googled it, but I'm curious. Yeah. So the definitions that I'm using, you're not going to find in Google or dictionary or anything like that. What mindfulness is, the way that the Buddha taught it is you can think about it generally as awareness of mind, but more specifically, it's the four foundations of mindfulness, being aware of the bodily sensations, the feelings the condition of the mind in the mental objects. And sometimes people need clarification on condition of the mind. This is like the general state of the mind over a consistent period of time, like a few hours, a few days, a week or two. That is what condition of mind is. And the bodily sensations we're talking about are not just an itch. It's the bodily sensations associated with discontentedness arising due to a craving. So like tightening of the chest, pain in the heart, tightening in the throat, heat in the face, pressure in the skull. So this is mindfulness that you need to have awareness of the bodily sensations, of the feelings, of the condition of the mind and the mental objects. The mental objects are those 10 fetters. Those are what we typically talk about with mental objects. We usually talk about them in the unwholesome aspect of a mental object, but there are mental objects that are wholesome as well, like loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, equanimity. What a mental object is, is it's a mental state that is consistent, but it's also dynamic. It changes over time. So that's what a mental object is. And that's what mindfulness is, awareness of mind. What meditation is, is meditation is an independent, dedicated, purposeful training session where you're either eliminating certain unwholesome qualities or you're cultivating certain wholesome qualities in the seated, lying, standing, or walking positions. 
So that's the difference. The meditation is the tool or the technique that is going to help you to develop the mindfulness, right? So you're developing the mindfulness, but now you need to practice mindfulness from the moment you're first starting to wake up until you start falling asleep. Because even when you're waking up in the morning, your thoughts can invade you. Or when you're going to sleep at night, your thoughts can invade you. So the Buddha talks about complacency in his teachings, where if you're complacent, of course, you're not going to get to enlightenment. And sometimes you think about complacency, like not coming to the temple, not reading the book, not meditating. This is all complacency. But he talks about it even as far as if you allow an unwholesome thought to exist in your mind, this is complacency. If you don't take action, if you don't use that right effort to cut it off and let it go and get rid of that unwholesome thought, he's saying you're complacent. Because if you're walking down the street and your mind is judging other people and looking down on people and you just let that persist, your mind is complacent, right? Or you're having some craving or some anger, some frustration arising in the mind and you just let it sit there, you're complacent. So you need to get so diligent in so much awareness of mind that even as you're gradually waking up in the morning and you're not even fully conscious yet, or you're dozing off at nighttime and you're not even fully asleep yet, be so conscious and so mindful that even if you have an unwholesome thought at that point, you cut it off and let it go. And that's how you'll ultimately end up purifying the mind, that you're that aware of your mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're welcome. Yes, sir. The difference of faults uh, or emotions, mm, the, how to deal with them, because the emotions, they're more difficult to deal with them than faults. For example, this, mm, when I read about different techniques, uh, your mm, Buddha techniques is very, sim- very simple which is some techniques talk about this, looking them, observe them, and um, find where they're coming from, which color they had. That's a technique how to manage these emotions, how to um, get out of it from our, okay, because we gain all these uh, patterns from childhoods and mm-hmm. uh, long, uh, our life and our experience. and they condition our life now, no? That's, um, mm, what's the difference of these techniques? Okay, are you saying faults and emotions? Faults and emotions, yeah. F-A-U-L-T-S? Yeah. Okay, so what you're describing as a technique where you look at your emotions and all that kind of stuff? Yes. You already know what's causing these emotions. If you've studied the Four Noble Truths and you've penetrated that with wisdom and you can see the truth in it, that any kind of discontent feelings are all coming from exactly the same thing. They're coming from craving, the desire, the attachment, the wants, the expectations. Anytime you experience any conditioned pleasant feeling, painful feeling, or neither painful nor pleasant, it's all coming from exactly the same thing. This is why you don't need like one meditation for stress, one meditation for anxiety, one meditation for guilt and shame, because it's all coming from exactly the same thing. So when your mind is experiencing any particular feeling or what you're describing as an emotion, you don't need to sit there and try to figure it out and look at it because what you're doing is you're just allowing the feeling to come into the mind. Now the mind's forming the conditioned feeling. You're trying to break up this process of the mind forming its inner feeling on some condition. You're trying to 
revert the mind and retrain it so that it doesn't do that any longer. And that's why you got to get ahead of the feeling and cut it off as a bodily sensation. But that's going to take time. So you don't need to sit there and look at the feeling in order to figure this out. If you've done the work on the Four Noble Truths, and if you need help with that further, we can do that where you can penetrate into the Four Noble Truths and you can see exactly why every single feeling that you've ever had your entire life or will have for the rest of your life, you can understand that it's craving, desire, attachment. So in the moment when these feelings are starting to arise as a bodily sensation, you'd like to just cut them off. Just cut them off. The mind should just be able to respond very readily and almost fluidly, but it's going to take time for you to build up to that point. If you miss it as a bodily sensation, okay, cut it off as a feeling. That's the next best thing. But in order to get to enlightenment, you're going to have to get ahead of the feeling. You're going to have to get into cutting it off as a bodily sensation. And that can sometimes take years to get to that point where you can readily cut off every single arising discontent feeling as a bodily sensation. Then after the mind is calm, your mind has regained its contentedness, at least, you know, in that period of time, maybe it's going to be a few minutes, maybe it's going to be a few hours, maybe it's a few days, right? But then that's where you can look inward and you can say, what were the cravings, desires, attachments that led to this discontentedness? Because it can help you to see what was triggered. So for example, like uh, the example I gave you with the phone, when I left the phone at home, were you here yesterday when I talked about this? about the phone, right? So in that moment, the fear came up, right? When I was driving down the street. And at that time, my practice was developed to the point where I could cut it off right away. I was like, boom, cut that off. And then there was no more fear in the mind. And then I sat there and I thought about it. I was like, all right, what is the mind craving? And I was like, ah, the phone, right? So then the mind wanted to go get the phone, but I didn't do that. I kept on going. So you can look at what are the cravings, desires, attachments, and this is really helpful. It's actually a chapter in the first book. It's chapter 13, where I teach you how to identify your cravings because you're going to need that ability, just like you need the ability to meditate and you've learned how to meditate and you're going to need help to continue to develop your meditation practice. You're going to also need this ability to identify your cravings, desires, attachments. And oftentimes what students do is they learn it in a class, then maybe two or three times they're going to need to talk with their teacher and say, teacher, I had this situation. Here's the emotions or feelings that I've experienced. Here's the cravings that I think it is, or I don't even know what cravings it is. So after two or three or four times of doing that, you get reassurance and confident that yes, you're identifying your cravings. But even still, I have students sometimes after they've been learning with me six months, a year, two years, they will contact me and they'll say, hey, David, I'm having this situation. I can't figure out what the craving is. Can you help me? Right? So that's what a teacher is there for is to help you with that. I don't suggest you think about faults, right? Because faults, it's like who's right and who's wrong. Is, is that what you're talking about with faults? Oh, thoughts, thoughts. Okay, thoughts. Okay, so a thought is just a thought, just an idea. That's different than a feeling. A feeling is based on some condition. A thought is just things that the mind is thinking about. And you're going to always have thoughts. 
You're going to have thoughts all throughout your life. But a feeling is something that gets formed, which is a conditional experience that's going to arise and change and fade away. Thoughts are impermanent too. They arise, change, and fade away. But a feeling is based on some condition, like the sun is out, so I'll be happy. But now it's raining, so now I'll be sad. But thoughts, they're just coming in and out of the mind at different times. And you're going to need thoughts in your life in order to go forward in life. And the more that you purify your mind, your thoughts will be wholesome. Right now, with certain pollutions in your mind, you sometimes have unwholesome thoughts where you think unwholesome things. And that's where when you have an unwholesome thought, you would like to cut that off and let it go. Just like when you have a certain feeling, you would like to cut that off and let that go. And you can just keep it with you. You're welcome to sit down. And then when we're done, we're done and you can pass it on. Yeah. Thoughts, um, they're easier to manage than emotions. Yes, because the emotions or the feelings are based in craving, desire, attachment, and that's the, the pollution of the mind. That's the pollution that's causing the discontent feelings, right? So that's the mind pulling and longing, yearning. Sometimes it's an obsession that the mind has. So it's very challenging to pull the mind back. So even though I say cut it off and let it go, it's more like cut it off and 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 cut it off. You might be cutting off a certain craving for multiple months and years. Like just when I was trying to get rid of coffee, it probably took me three, four, five months just to get rid of coffee. I had to cut it back and cut it back and cut it back before it was finally let go a hundred percent. But in the moment I was cutting it off and letting it go and I would let it go for a period of time, maybe like a week or two, but then the craving would arise again. It's like this wild bush. So the thoughts, they're not necessarily based in craving. They can be based in craving, but not always, but a feeling, a conditioned feeling is always based in craving. So that's why it's hard to let those go because that cravings in there pulling and motivating this feeling to be created. And that's what you're working to revert. So in any of these things that I'm sharing with you in these last three days, really, you're not going to be able to do it in the next couple of days or the next week, or maybe even the next month. So that's why you need to revisit this through books and videos and classes and personal guidance. And it's a long-term journey, the journey, the path to enlightenment, it's a path, it's a journey. It's going to take time, but if you gradually chip away at it, the mind will get better and better and better at it. Okay, but scientific explanation about this uh, emotion is a chemical, uh, our body works with the chemical uh, hormones and, uh, and other patterns. And it's like, sometimes I know the power of the mind is bigger than chemical reaction in our body. Mm -hmm. But that's, that's we, the Buddha doesn't talk about, it, no, because the, the, mm, this year doesn't exist, that kind of knowledge. Yeah, this is where Western sciences are not quite understanding it 100% that the mind is one thing and the brain is something completely different. The mind is an intangible, non-physical thing. Like you can't point to the mind, even though we tend to point here. The mind is non-physical, so it doesn't have any particular location. Thai people, they point to their heart when they talk about the mind. They think about the mind residing in the heart. And the Buddha kind of talked this way too during his lifetime. But if you talk to people from other cultures like India, they will talk about the mind being outside the body, right? So like 
different people point to different locations for the mind, but in reality, it's non-physical. You can't point to it because it doesn't exist in physical form, but the brain does. The brain is a physical object. It's in the skull, right? So the mind and the brain are two different things. You're training the mind. The mind is what's polluted. And when you're training the mind, it's going to affect the brain in a positive way. But what people are thinking sometimes in Western sciences and stuff is they're thinking that the brain and the mind might be the same thing. So they're trying to tweak brain chemistry in order to produce a result in the mind. So while these are two different things, if you train the mind, it will affect the brain. And if you introduce chemicals into the brain, it will affect the mind, but you can't purify the mind through chemistry. You can't tweak the brain chemistry with pharmaceuticals in order to get rid of sadness. This is why people who experience um, what are referred to nowadays as mental illness, oftentimes they're relegated to medication for the rest of their life and it never actually solves the problem because they're in there tweaking brain chemistry where these chemicals are needed in certain situations, but you can't get rid of craving, anger, and ignorance through tweaking brain chemistry. It's just not possible. So I'm curious about the present moment. So what significance does the present moment have? Like what does it do to us anyway? What what is it? Yeah, when the mind is in the present moment, it's not craving, it's not longing, it's not yearning. When the mind's in the past or in the future, that's because it's not content just being in the present moment. And when we say in the past and the future, that doesn't mean you don't ever think about the past or you don't ever plan the future. It means that the mind is practicing singleness of mind. So in the present moment, you could be reflecting on something that's happened in your past and trying to figure out what could I do to improve because I'm not interested in that same thing happening again. Or that was a really wholesome thing that happened before. How do I make some wise decisions so that I can experience that again? Or, hey, I'm going on this trip or I'm planning this retreat in the present moment. Let me plan this retreat. But what the mind wants to do because of its lack of training and discipline is as you're trying to plan your retreat or you're trying to plan your trip, you're thinking about something else or you're in a business meeting working on a project team and your mind's thinking something else. It's somewhere else. It's not in the present moment with singleness of mind dealing with this project that you're working with your team on. And now you can't bring forth all your wisdom. So by having the mind in the present moment, you can have focus, clarity, concentration. You can deal with whatever task you're doing, bring your full wisdom to it. And now you're making wise decisions. That's going to produce wholesome results. But if your mind's wandering off somewhere else, when you really should be here working on this project. Now you're making unwise decisions and now that's going to produce unwholesome results in your life. And in order to extinguish your unwholesome gamma, which is what we're going to talk about today, you need to be in the present moment, bringing forth all your wisdom to then be able to make wise decisions to produce wholesome results. It seems like it has some purifying effect as well on the mind. Is that true? Or am I just imagining like being in the present moment is kind of healing? Yeah, because like I mentioned, if you're not in the present moment, the mind is craving and longing and yearning. So by bringing your mind to the present moment, you're eliminating craving, desire, attachment. That's the purification. So you're purifying the mind of craving, anger, and ignorance so that now you can practice generosity, loving kindness, and wisdom. And part of that wisdom is to practice singleness of mind in everything you do. So this way you can be focused and clear in every single situation that you're in. Mm -hmm. So, 
That's dramatic, wasn't it? Um, so do we have unwholesome thoughts because of our unwholesome sensations and physic, like the physical sensations in the body because of our unwholesome karma? None of your thoughts are based in the body. The body doesn't have a way to think. So the body is... But from a, our feelings. Hold on. This feeling. Hold on. So the body is the employee. The mind is the boss. So anything that you ever think or feel or anything like that, it's all coming from the mind itself, not the body. The body is just physical structures. The Buddha describes it through what's called the four element theory, because that's how they describe the body during his lifetime, earth, wind, fire, and water, if you've ever heard of this. Nowadays, we talk about it as cells and molecules and atoms and things like this, right? So the body are just just physical structures, just like that carpet. That carpet can't think about anything because it's just a carpet. It's just a material object. The body's the same way, that it's just a physical object. It's the mind that's doing all the thinking and the feeling and all these kinds of things. So anytime you have an unwholesome thought, it's coming from the mind and it's coming from those three unwholesome roots, craving, anger, and ignorance. Every single unwholesome thing that you've ever thought or you ever will think is coming from those same three things. And that's why you're trying to eliminate that out of your mind. And that's what you're working towards so that now you can arise the wholesome roots or the wholesome qualities of generosity, loving kindness, and wisdom. So that's why it's just impossible for an enlightened being to think about things in a negative way or have a negative perspective or argue or be resentful or anything like this. It's just not possible. Their mind physically can't do it because they've uprooted the pollutions out of the mind and it's not impossible for it to have those unwholesome thoughts and experience those things because the pollutions are completely eradicated from the mind. So anytime you're having an unwholesome thought, it's either craving, anger, or ignorance. And you can trace it, and that's how you confirm it. That's how I'm teaching you now, you're learning. Now you can reflect on it through different experiences, not necessarily right this moment, but over time. And then you can practice and you can uproot these craving, anger, and ignorance and see that your mind's becoming more pure and your mind isn't having unwholesome thoughts anymore. I think I ask um, from what I've previously learned is that mm-hmm. the brain releases a physical peptide within the body mm-hmm. that is a physical sensation within the body. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I believe that they've done tests to prove that you know, these physical peptides might be in the pinky toe and you might have a feeling then in that. And so what the brain then does is it creates a story to validate that feeling. So the tightness in the chest might be, oh, I'm jealous because of that. And the brain starts or the mind starts going off, creating the story to then validate that feeling. So I think that's, yeah. Okay. So what I would encourage you to do is to not believe because you said, you said, I believe they have done this. What I'm encouraging you to do is don't believe anything is see the truth for yourself. That the only thing the body has is a physical object, just like the carpet, right? And now the mind is what's processing everything. And there's a connection between the body and the mind, but the body itself can't think. It can't have feelings. The body can send a signal to the brain and then it moves to the mind because the brain is still the physical body. It's not the mind. So 
if you stump your toe, using this example, there's a physical sensation, but the body isn't actually doing the feeling. It's just a physical sensation that's connected to the nerve, and now it's going to the brain, and now the brain is going to the mind. So there's two things with physical sensations that are painful. There's a physical sensation, and then there's the mental anguish that oftentimes goes with it. So by the time you get to enlightenment, you will still experience physical pain. It'll be muted, but you'll still experience physical pain, but you won't experience the mental anguish that goes along with it. So in the unenlightened state, if you stump your toe, you're going to feel the physical sensation, and then you're going to feel the painful mental anguish that goes along with it. You might start cussing, you might start blaming people, you might start being frustrated and angry and all this kind of stuff, right? So that mental anguish actually heightens the physical pain because it was the physical pain that got triggered, and now the mind having craving for the body to be permanently comfortable, now there's mental painful feelings that arise, anger and frustration and these kinds of things. So that's what the unenlightened mind's experiencing. By the time you get to enlightenment, you will still know that you stumped your toe and it'll still hurt, the physical sensation of hurt. But the mind will be completely calm. It'll be completely peaceful. It'll be completely joyful. You'll know that this physical sensation is impermanent. And because of this, because you're only experiencing the physical sensation, not the mental anguish, the physical pain is significantly reduced, very muted, to the point where When I got in a motorbike accident in 2019, I cracked some ribs and had some other issues. And when I went to the hospital, I was very joyful. They actually did a urinalysis on me because they thought I was taking drugs. And that's why I wrecked the the motorbike. They did a urinalysis checking my urine, thinking that I was high or something like that because I was still, still joyful, still peaceful. So... I'm not sure if that's what you're talking about, physical pain and mental anguish. Okay. So, <laughs> <That's okay. laughs> so what you what you need to do though is purge all that belief. Cause you're saying, I believe they have done this. It feels that, true in my that, experiences. That, that belief I've, I've, is what you would like to get rid of. Yeah. You would like to be able to see the truth. And what I'm sharing with you is the truth. And as I mentioned from the very beginning of the class, what I'm sharing with you is going to be different than what you currently understand. And the reason why is because your mind is currently holding on to certain false beliefs, certain misperceptions. And as long as your mind holds on to those, you won't be able to get to the truth and be able to see that truth. So that's why you practice the intention of renunciation, where you're not holding on to the things that you currently believe, but you understand like, okay, your mind's been exposed to this but you haven't necessarily investigated it yourself to be able to prove that it's true. But what I'm sharing with you is here is the truth. And now you can investigate that and you can know that it's true through reflecting on it and practicing it and being able to see it for yourself. And here's another reason why you know that the body can't think by itself. Okay. So there's the body and there's the mind. If the body can think by itself, then that means when the mind and the body separate, at the time of death, that the body could sit there and still think, but it can't. When there's death, the body just sits there and it's four elements. It's earth, water, wind, and fire. It just sits there. It can't think because it's a dead body. So I've had doctors and scientists, chiropractors who come here and learn, and they are taught that the body has emotion, even massage therapists, because I was in massage field before this. And massage people are taught that the body has emotion. 
It's just not true. This is what people are believing. And the way that you can independently verify that and see that for yourself is that at the time of death, that the body and the mind separate and the body is just sitting there. Sometimes people say, well, the body is so smart. The body is so smart. It's not. It's just like this carpet. It's just physical objects. It's the mind that's doing everything. And you can see that for yourself. Mm-hmm. What's that? Going to, you're saying that the body obtains emo- like. Sometimes we hear in in yoga or like chiropractors or when you go to massage that trigger points or so that's not, yeah. That's not feelings or emotion. What that is, is it's just the, the muscle, the tissue is bound up and now they put pressure on it and it sends a sensation through the nervous system to the brain and now the brain processes that and now the mind can experience a certain pleasant feeling, a painful feeling or neither painful nor pleasant based on its cravings, but it's not, the emotion's not in the body itself. Okay. It's in the actual mind. Okay. So re- like reflexology and trauma work that people sometimes do, that's different. So what people are thinking, which isn't true, but what people believe in massage and chiropractic Mm -hmm. and all this is they think that emotion is stored in the body. And they think that if they press that spot, it releases the emotion and now they can let it go. But Mm -hmm. the emotion isn't stored in the body. The body is the employee. The boss is the mind. So let's just say someone's had a traumatic experience in the past and their mind is now holding on to that their mind has now got that craving or that conditioning that's in the mind. Now the mind being the boss, the mind is the boss. Now the boss can be stressed. It can be anxious. It can be having all these different things. And now you can feel tightening in your shoulders or you can feel any kind of other bodily sensations as a result of what's going on in the mind. And now you can massage the shoulders and you can release the tension out of the shoulders, but it's going to return. It's going to keep returning because you haven't addressed the mind. You haven't solved the problem, which is the craving desire attachment. So that's how you know that the emotion's not in the body. Another way that you know, because if you press on the body with that tension and you released it, then okay, you released it. It's gone. No, it just keeps coming back because the mind is the boss and the body's the employee. So when you train your mind and you purify the mind and the mind becomes tranquil, the body will be tranquil. You won't have all those miscellaneous aches and pains that you might have at different times if you're experiencing those. You can have bodily sensations, like I said, if you stump your toe or you have an injury to your knee or if you have these kinds of things, yeah. But all those little aches and pains that you have because of stress or anxiety or any of these other feelings that are in the mind, when the mind's experiencing that, then it's affecting the body, just like the boss is going to affect the employee. But the emotion itself isn't stored in the body itself. That's just a response that the body's having because of what's going on in the mind. If you can, if you can use the mic, that'd be great. So would you say that the body is within the mind in a way? I mean, we still have the life force of something within our body, right? The signals is something. No, the mind is intangible. It's non-physical. You can't point to where it is. And it doesn't really matter where it is because it's still polluted. You got to train it. You got to uproot all those pollutions. So even if you knew where it was, let's just say it's on your kneecap. Okay, so what? It's on my kneecap. Still got to train it. You still got to... Yeah, I'm not arguing with that. I'm just saying the body is within the mind. So the mind is bigger than the body. I mean, we still have some 
life force running through our body. You can't say that the mind is bigger than the body because the mind isn't physical. Yeah, but still, I don't know, yeah. Sorry. See, these are all the different things that your mind has been exposed to. You guys have been exposed to so many different things. And it's, it's just holding on to all these different stuff that there's a life force, that we need to create boundaries, that there's gaslighting, that there's this, that there's that. This is all conditioning so, of the so mind. There's no life force. And, the, and the, mind, the mind gets so confused and it's holding on to all this stuff. And what the Buddhist teachings are doing is helping you just to clear all that stuff out and just live life so easily and so simply that you don't have to hang on to all that stuff, right? It's, it's, such, a, it's such a burden to carry all that stuff around, right? So the mind wants to believe all these different things. I was in massage at one time and we taught, you know, these Zen lines and this life force and yes, all this different, the chi and all these different things let all that go. You know, the chakras, the chi, the, all this stuff. If you're going to learn that in a yoga discipline, or you're going to learn that in like a, like a Chinese medicine class, and you're going to apply that in there. Okay. Apply that. But when it comes to training the mind, just let all that stuff go. If you're retaining that information in order to apply it as a Chinese medicine doctor or a yoga instructor and yoga practitioner, okay, like apply it there, but don't try to apply that to what's going on with the mind. It's very simple. The teachings of the Buddha are very simple, but people have made them more complex through their own modifications and changing. But if you get back to what the Buddha actually taught, it's very clear, very straightforward and very easy. And then as you do that, that's where you'll see the mind will just function very easily when you simplify it. Tina's been very patient. <laughs> yes, please. Just so you guys know, we're probably not going to get an hour and a half lunch today. <laughs> just so you know. <laughs> but this is a choice that you guys are making. It's okay. I'm, I'm fine with, a, with no lunch at all, right? I can sit here and talk, but I just let you guys know this is a choice you're making. That's wonderful. I, I think it's wonderful when students are asking lots of questions. So this is great. Go ahead. Okay, well... That's just impermanence. It's working. Put it up to your mouth. It did that for me yesterday, too. Yep. Okay. Um, actually, just mentioned something that, based on the question I was going to ask. We've just learned the basics and the fundamentals of Buddhism. And what I seem to see, I see, personally see a correlation between yogic philosophy and Buddhism. And I'm mm. wondering what your thoughts are on that. You're going to see certain connections between the Buddhist teachings and lots of things like Christianity or Muslim teachings, or you'll see some connections here and there, right? Because what the Buddha taught is he taught the natural laws of existence. And these natural laws are embedded in various disciplines and various traditions. Sometimes what a mind might do is they might try to correlate something and say, oh, not that you're doing this, but this is what some people do is they say, oh, Buddhism is exactly the same as this over here. And I already know this, so I don't need to learn Buddhism. And this is what sometimes the mind does as a way of justifying like and getting away from the work of needing to learn the path to enlightenment and learning Buddhism. So it's interesting to see the correlations and see the connections. I think that stuff is, is really fascinating. But what the Buddha did is he has this complete package. He has the whole kitten caboodle, so to speak, right? And he's like, here, this is how you train your mind to get to this peaceful, joyful 
beautiful mental state that is permanent. And now if you learn that and you practice that, that's what's going to train your mind and purify your mind. Now, this other technique over here of yoga, what yoga, in my opinion, and what I know was created for is actually for you to get more benefit out of your meditation, that by sitting in meditation all the time, the body has some aches and pains and challenges here and there. So you can do this stretching activity, which of course they base the philosophy and the discipline of yoga in things like chakras and other things like that to help you understand the theory behind it. But ultimately by helping the body be more comfortable, you're going to get more ability to meditate for longer periods of time and get more benefit out of the meditation itself. So there's all these correlations as you can see through yoga, through all these different things. But in my opinion, it's best to look at things on their own merits. So like, for example, when I learned Thai massage and I brought Thai massage into America, I only taught the physical technique of Thai massage, the Thai culture, the Buddhism. I taught what's called traditional Thai medicine and I kept everything Thai. But there's other people who learned Thai massage and they mixed it with Chinese medicine. They mixed it with Ayurveda. They mixed it with all these other things. Our school and our Thai massage centers were wildly successful because we kept it pure as Thai massage and people got a lot of benefit from it because we kept it pure within that system. As soon as you start mixing and matching things, in my opinion, it dilutes it. While it's interesting to talk about it, it's interesting to have conversations and see the connections. It's like, oh yeah, look, Jesus and the Buddhist teachings have a lot of similarities or yeah, look at this connection to yoga. This is really interesting. When you're practicing, when you're learning and practicing, it's best, in my opinion, to stay within one system and don't mix it. So that way it'll be more effective. And the reason why you're seeing these connections is because the Buddha taught the natural laws of existence. And then you can see these different pieces of people that are teaching various aspects of that. So I've even had people that have come from like business management classes. They've said, David, I was in a business management seminar last week uh, in Dubai and they were teaching uh, successful professional communication. And what you're teaching from the Buddha is what we learned in that class. So there's so many connections because the Buddha is teaching the natural laws of existence. And now people are teaching things based on those natural laws. And of course, when you're learning professional communication, you would like to practice the natural law of gamma, which is what we're talking about throughout the whole course. And today, you would like to practice that because if you practice and understand the natural law of gamma as it relates to business presentations, you're going to be a much better business person. And it's the same thing with yoga and Christianity and all these things. Different people have tapped into different parts of this, maybe 1%, 5%, 10%, 15% of the natural laws of existence. But the Buddha is giving you 100% of the natural laws of existence saying, this is how you train your mind to get to enlightenment. So you'll see those connections, but I encourage you in terms of getting to enlightenment is to stay focused on the teachings of the Buddha and don't mix it so it doesn't get diluted. Mm-hmm. Tina, you're going to have to get up and get a mic because <laughs> she's been no, really patient. Um, she's been very patient. And you guys are. <laughs> Ooh, it's working. Sometimes people think if you're practicing Buddhist teachings, you're very passive. Yeah. Um, no, yeah. It's not true. You can make a decision to get up yeah. and get a mic and you have a I'm question. I'm trying to be the, um, yeah. to my I, I, I meant to ask this earlier okay. on, actually, because we've probably moved on now. And it's going back to the mind, mindfulness part, as in, mm-hmm. in the present moment. I think we've all had experiences in our life. Some have had harm done to us. If you have had harm done to you in the past, 
there's a lot of money being made nowadays with therapists, etc. And you, what they tend to do is you have to discuss what happened in the past to be free now mm-hmm. and to, for your mind to be free, which obviously contradicts um, obviously what the teachings are. If you understand what, yeah. yeah. So, in my opinion, this is unwise. Even though this is what some people choose to do, and I'm sure they have reasons why they do it that way. I don't know the reasons why they do it that way, 100. percent Even though I participated in the, like, at one time I used to do therapy and or receive therapy, right? And they would walk you through your past, and 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 you would really dwell in that stuff. And I'm sure they must have a reason. Maybe it triggers the craving, and then you can let it go. I'm not sure what because I've never studied that. But in my opinion, and based on the way that I see that the teachings of the Buddha have worked, is that just whenever a thought of those traumatic experiences from your childhood or adulthood or whatever come up, you cut them off and let them go. You don't give them any kind of weight in the mind. You just nip them in the bud. You cut them off and you cut them off and you cut them off. By the time you get to enlightenment, you'll remember the things that happened, right? Like if somebody's been physically abused or sexually abused, they'll remember that that has occurred, but it won't affect the condition of their mind in the present moment because they understand that that was a temporary situation. It was in the past. I'm not going to form my current feelings based on something that happened in the past. And now you can reside peaceful and joyful in the present moment, despite anything that's happened in your past. But if somebody keeps going to the past and reliving that, in my opinion, that's unwise because it just allows the pollution to be kicked around in the mind. Instead, what you would like to do is just cut it off and cut it off and cut it off. When those bodily sensations are coming up, cut it off and cut it off. And eventually you eliminate the craving and the conditioning because we talk about craving, but there's also this aspect of the mind called clinging where the mind's holding on. And anytime craving or clinging is going on in your mind, you cut it off and you cut it off and you cut it off. And eventually the mind won't cling anymore. So like I mentioned, you'll have memories, but you won't experience feelings in the present moment based on things in the past. Same thing, you won't base your feelings on something that's happening in the future too. Your mind will just reside in the present moment, peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. Yeah, don't know if going to, oh yeah, so, um, yeah, I've lost sight of that. Yeah, I think, uh, again, which your teachings now have, have really been quite inspirational to me, because again, I think it's maybe my personal experience or what I've, but a lot of that is we do tend to, when we've had harm done to us or whatever, we do tend to blame. And it's that person that's done it to you. That person's done that. And if you get yourself away from that person, then everything will be better. Mm-hmm. Whereas obviously what you're teaching is, it, it's how, like, it's not me personally, but it would be how I've reacted to that situation, how I've dealt with it in my mind. Right. And you still may make the wise decision to go away from that person, right? If someone's being abusive, you're not interested in staying in that relationship. You would probably move on. But any painful feelings that you're experiencing is being caused by your own mind. And you're not going to solve that by just moving on. So you may still need to move on, but you need to eliminate any craving that's causing those discontent feelings. Sometimes what you hear people say is, you know, I've had this traumatic experience happen to me and now I'll never be able to get rid of it. And I'm going to experience this sadness for the rest of my life because of what you did to me. And this is getting into that victim role where now 
I can't make my life better because of what you did to me. And what the Buddha is teaching you is, no, it's not anybody doing anything to you. It's your mind causing these things itself. And if you gain control over that, sure, these unfortunate situations happened, but you can get wisdom and move beyond that and not have feelings now in the present moment based on something that happened in the past. So you can get rid of all these things. You know, sometimes you see people that will get enormous amounts of money, and I'm not saying that's good or bad, but sometimes people get enormous amounts of money for something that happened. Where here, if you go through Thailand's court systems, they don't do those kinds of things. They give you enough money to take care of whatever it is that you had issues with, but they're not going to give you all this money because you're now going to be dealing with these feelings and emotions for the rest of your life, that they understand that that's not true. So like my wife, when we were getting married, she went to a, a doctor and she was having laser done on her skin to make it look better. And they burned her skin. And at our wedding, in our wedding photo, she has all these scabs on her face. And um, we took it to court because she had to then go get a bunch of treatments to fix it. And they only gave her the money to fix it. They didn't give her penalties for, gosh, your wedding photos are never going to look right again. And, you know, gosh, you're going to be struggling your whole life that you never got these perfect wedding photos and all these other things. They're just like, okay, how much did it cost for you to fix your face? Oh, 200,000 baht. Okay, here's your 200,000 baht. And that's it, right? Where in other cultures, it would be like, oh, they're going to have terrible wedding photos. They're, they're never going to be able to live with this for the rest of their life. If they're going to be so sad. So let's give them $5 million for this pain that they're experiencing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you can train your mind like, okay, well, that's unfortunate that our wedding photos don't have her looking so great, but actually we did have a photo shoot before that burning happened. So in Thailand, you have a pre-wedding photo shoot. Fortunately, we had a wedding photo shoot. So we do have some amazing wedding photos, but at the wedding itself, you can see her face is all, all burned up, but it has an effect on our marriage. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we, have, we have a wonderful life, <laughs> you know, this kind of thing. So, okay. I think we should go to Tina. Yeah. Um, I was wondering about the connection between the mind and the brain. Uh, is it possible to train someone's mind whose brain has been damaged? If there's physical damage to the brain and there's trauma in the brain, like the brain doesn't function the way that it needs to in order to take in information and learn it and then do something with it, the mind wouldn't be able to get the training that it needs in this life. And that's one of the connecting to what we're going to be talking about today, which is the natural law of gamma. This is the old gamma. This is the old gamma. So if you're born into this life with like a traumatic brain injury, this is your old gamma from your previous life. And now in this life, even though you're in a human existence, you can't learn. You don't have the ability to take in information and learn and then develop your mind in this life. But if you live this life, you can either get to enlightenment at death or you potentially will be reborn into another existence, either in the human realm or the heavenly realm, where you can get to enlightenment in that existence. So I say that all people can get to enlightenment, but yes, that there's a caveat there that you need to have a functioning brain because the brain is going to influence the mind, right? The mind needs to be able to take in information and 
the brain needs to be functioning. So while the brain and the mind are two different things, there's a connection between them that if the brain is damaged, the mind's not going to function in a way that allows it to take in knowledge and wisdom and do something with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is great. Random frequently asked questions. Karen, you have a question? You just, okay. I thought you were just playing Actually, with Actually, it's along the same lines. It's very specific to stroke, which is sort mm-hmm. of separating out the mind and body. Mm-hmm. But there is that brain element. So I think I'll leave the question. Um, okay, you would yeah, like to hear be, this? I think it's probably okay. answered in that. But I am curious about that. Yeah. So the same thing mm-hmm. is if the brain is not functioning the way that it mm-hmm. needs to in order to take in information mm-hmm. and then do something with it, to then develop the mind, an individual is going to be incapable of getting to enlightenment in this life. Mm -hmm. Um, So whether they were born that way or whether they had a car accident and their brain ended up that or a gunshot, Mm -hmm. or if there was a stroke and their mind is no longer performing to be able to take in information and then do something with it, they wouldn't be able to get to enlightenment in this life. But there can be rebirth to get to an improved existence where the brain and now the mind is functioning in a way that they can take in information, do something with it and improve. But to help somebody who's in that situation, mm-hmm. the meditation on impermanence would be... I'm not familiar with 100% of what a stroke patient mm-hmm. is um, experiencing. Like, can they take in, like, can they read a book and understand a book? Mm-hmm. They can? Yeah. 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 So they could get to enlightenment then. Yeah. Yeah. They'd be able to get to enlightenment. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. Maybe we can talk. Yeah. Yes. They need to be able to store it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If they don't have memory. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So like once somebody has Alzheimer's, they wouldn't be able to because they they can't remember things. Mm -hmm. But if you've trained your mind in meditation, this is one of the reasons why getting on the path to enlightenment early in life like this and and you guys Mm. training your minds, you won't experience Alzheimer's by the time you train your mind to get to enlightenment. And an enlightened being is never going to experience Alzheimer's, for example. It's just not possible for their mind and their brain to deteriorate. Once you get to enlightenment, it's a permanent mental state that Mm -hmm. the mind will always be in that state. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, you guys ready? One One more? Okay. (laughs) Okay. Lots more, but maybe, maybe, maybe okay. just one more for now. Okay. All right. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm curious as to whether the ideas of, of energies and all the, like gaslighting and all of the things, um, I guess are just not fully taking accountability. Like mm-hmm. at the end of it with Buddha's teaching is it's mm-hmm. all about you like you're taking accountability for your own stuff and mm-hmm. so when we say our energy centers are not balanced or we've got emotions stored in our hips <laughs> or i'm having a kundalini rising and that's why i'm so angry you know so it's it's projecting onto other other things or you know i'm i'm possessed or whatever it might be that mm-hmm. are these other sources whereas what yeah. i'm hearing yeah. is that the the buddhist teachings are more like that doesn't exist because it's all within the mind, not the brain. Yes, <laughs> Is exactly. that correct? Exactly, that's 100% correct. And what's typically happening in that example, with all those different examples you mentioned, it's, right? Yeah. I'm angry because of this, where what the Buddha is doing is saying, you're angry because of this. 
what's going on in your but own then life. this doesn't exist and that's why i would love to really unpack <laughs> well there is a body and there is a mind yeah yeah but, but it's that's not, not who you are Ugh. so the universal truth of non-self is yeah. helping you to eliminate any clinging yeah. to the self-image and self-identity it's not to say that there is no being here that's not yeah, 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 yeah. Right. So as long as the mind is doing this and blaming everyone else for what you're experiencing, that's where the mind then might go around the world and try to put your expectations on other people and try to control other people to do things your way. You think that the way to get to peacefulness is to get other people to do things your way. Where what the Buddha is doing is saying, no, you're never going to get to peacefulness that way because it's not possible for 8 billion people in the world to do things your way permanently. Instead, you just train your mind to not crave and long and yearn and have these expectations. And then you can get to liberation and experience the peace and the joy. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what you were describing. That's what we call wrong view. And then what right view is, is taking responsibility and accountability for your own feelings and that it's craving desire attachment. That's causing that. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you guys ready to move on (laughs) or should I say start? Start. (laughs) You guys ready to start our class? (laughs) All right. So thank all of you guys online for being patient while we're asking questions here. I think perhaps people online maybe enjoy the conversation as well because they're learning as uh, you guys are asking questions. Yeah, I see people whining and, and saying thank you online. So people are appreciative. Yeah, Max as well. So there's more than one person that's whining and saying thank you guys for the conversation because I'm sure they were learning at the same time. So our topic this morning, there's actually two topics, but the first one is what is gamma and how does it affect me? This is where we're going in and studying the natural law of gamma directly, where everything you've been learning in this course and anything you will learn about the teachings of the Buddha in one way or another are coming back to this natural law. So when we talk about awakening to the natural laws of existence and gaining wisdom about the natural laws so that you can make wise decisions to produce wholesome results, we're talking about this natural law of gamma. So when the Buddha is teaching things like the Eightfold Path or the Five Precepts or things like this, he's teaching you the natural law of gamma. It's not rules. It's not commandments. He's not forcing you to do anything. He's helping you to see the wisdom of this natural law so that then with that wisdom, you will make wise decisions that produces wholesome results. Because as long as you have a lack of wisdom, like we were talking about with the three poisons yesterday, you will make unwise decisions that produce unwholesome results. So every thing the Buddha is teaching you, even something as simple as the five precepts, is coming back to this natural law of gamma. But now we're going to go in and we're going to talk about this natural law directly so you can see the various aspects of this natural law. And this is in chapter nine of volume one. Okay, so first, let's just talk generally about what the natural law of gamma is. It's a natural law that exists and is functioning at all times in every moment. Everything the Buddha taught is coming back to this natural law. It's very simple. It's cause and effect or action and result. It's the results of your decisions. Some people refer to this as karma. That's the Sanskrit version of this. The Pali version is gamma. And if it just translated to one English word, I would just use that English word because it'd be much easier. But we need to add more than just one word. So that's why we still need the Pali word in order to help you guys to understand this natural law. So it's cause and effect or action and result. It's the results of your decisions. It's not mystical or magical. It's not punishments and rewards. It's not even about who's at fault or who's to blame. It's essentially a sequencing of events that when this occurs, then this is going to occur. 
When this occurs, this is going to occur. It's cause and effect or action and result. This natural law is affecting every single being, whether you're aware of it or not. And as you lack wisdom of this natural law, you're going to naturally make unwise decisions because of the lack of wisdom without being a bad person or without intentionally wanting to do harm necessarily. You will cause harm because of the lack of wisdom. You'll make unwise decisions. And because of those unwise decisions and the lack of wisdom, you'll experience the unwholesome results coming back. So that's why it's important to learn about this natural law and all the teachings of the Buddha are explaining this natural law to you so that you can understand it. And just like the example I typically give is the natural law of gravity. At one time, you didn't understand it and you struggled with it. You had difficulties. You fell down, you hit your head, you busted open your elbow, you broke things, but slowly but surely you awakened to this natural law. So when you lacked wisdom of the natural law of gravity, you made unwise decisions without realizing it. You struggled and you experienced unwholesome results. But then when you fully awoke to the wisdom of the natural law of gravity, you were then able to make wise decisions where now you can get on ladders, you can get on airplanes, you can ride bicycles, you can ride motorbikes. You have no issues with this natural law of gravity anymore. Your life is completely peaceful as it relates to the natural law of gravity. And that's because you fully awoke to it. So this natural law of gamma is what you need to fully awake to. And then you can make wise decisions that is going to lead to wholesome results for you. And as long as you lack the wisdom, you'll make unwise decisions that produce unwholesome results. So there's no being or entity that oversees the functioning of the natural law of gamma. It's based in your intentions, your speech, and your actions as you're putting certain decisions out in the world, then you're going to experience the results. And it's just so simple that if those are wise decisions, you'll experience wholesome results. And if they're unwise, you'll experience unwholesome results. It's not a system of punishments and rewards. Again, it's not even about who's at fault or who's to blame. It's nothing mystical or magical. It's just the results of your decisions. It's not this dark cloud that follows you around. Sometimes you'll hear that. Sometimes people think about gamma as like a bank account that you're making deposits into. So therefore you can make withdrawals out of too. This isn't true. It's just the results of your decisions. I'm going to go into it a lot of depth, but just generally think about it in this way. If you're polite, kind, friendly, and respectful, people will tend to be polite, kind, friendly, and respectful to you. This is the results of your decisions. You've decided to be polite, kind, friendly, and respectful. So the natural law of gamma is that that's what's going to come back to you. And then conversely, if you're impolite, unkind, unfriendly, and disrespectful because of the natural law of gamma, that's what's going to come back to you. So whatever you put out, that's what's going to come back. It's the cause and effect or the action and result. So here's just kind of a summary that I use to kind of help you guys to remember this, that it's the results of your decisions. It's your life, your decisions, and your results. And that's why as a teacher, we're not trying to force you or control you or tell you what to do because you need to make the decisions for yourself and you need to go through a series of unwise decisions in some cases to be able to see the unwholesome results and then learn from that, right? One of the best, most unbiased teachers that you will ever find is the natural law of gamma. Because it's going to show you in the situations where you're making unwise decisions. When you make an unwise decision, you're going to see the unwholesome result. So if you ever have a certain unwholesome result in your life, what the unrelated mind will tend to do is it'll tend to blame other people. Is it'll tend to try to find someone to blame. Because with the ego in there, you're not going to want to take responsibility for it. Or with wrong view in the mind, you're not going to be interested to take responsibility. But if you can get to the point where you understand everything you experience as a result of your decisions, whenever you experience an unwholesome result in your life, step back, 
put a pause on all your decision making and try to figure out what decisions did I make that led to this experience? What decisions did I make that led to this unwholesome result? And then when you can trace it back to your unwise decisions, then you cultivate wisdom to no longer make those same decisions. Because if you keep making those same decisions over and over, it's going to keep producing the same results. So the natural law of gamma is the most unbiased teacher that you will ever find because it's going to keep showing you in situations where you're making unwise decisions. And then when you cultivate the wisdom, you can overcome that and stop making those same decisions over and over and over again. So that's why as a Buddhist teacher, I never tell you what to do. I just say, okay, if you make decisions this way, this is what you'll experience. If you make decisions this way, this is what you'll experience. And then it's up to you to decide what decisions you would like to make. And then you'll experience those results. And then you read that result to determine whether or not your decision was wise or unwise. But I'm going to give you more details to figure out what's wise and unwise than just that. Okay, so here's some words from the Buddha on the natural law of gamma. Remember, all of his teachings in one way or another are coming back to this natural law. Out of this book series, there's one specific book that dives into the natural law of gamma in detail. But in reality, the entire book series is about the natural law of gamma because everything he's teaching you is about the natural law of gamma. But here's just two phrases that I pulled out, two teachings, because it illustrates two important points that you need to know in order to understand the natural law of gamma. Here he says, beings are the owners of their gamma, the heirs of their gamma. They have gamma as their origin, gamma as their relative, gamma as their resort. Whatever gamma they do, wholesome or unwholesome, they are its heirs. What he's saying here is, you create your own gamma. Nobody else can create gamma for you. It's the results of your decisions that you're experiencing the things you're experiencing in life. Nobody else can create gamma for you. So this is like yesterday when the topic of gaslighting came up and I said, people can't gaslight you. This is a part of the unknowing of true reality. People can't make you feel a certain way. It's your own mind that's doing that. So this is the natural law of gamma where everything that you experience in life as a result of your decision. Somebody else can't create gamma for you. Now you can say, choose a friend and now maybe you've chosen a friend and maybe now this friend is a drug dealer and you know this and they're selling drugs, right? And now you're walking down the street with them and now because of their decisions to be a drug dealer and your decision to be their friend, you get shot and you get murdered because the competing drug dealer thinks that you're a drug dealer too when maybe you're not, and now you get murdered. But that's a choice that you're making. That's your choice to be friends with that person. And that's why the Buddha teaches you to cultivate wholesome relationships in your life, among other things. So it's always the results of your decisions that are leading to any particular results in your life. And that's what the Buddha is illustrating here and in other teachings that he shares as well. Then this other one, he says, the result of gamma, I say, is threefold to be experienced in this very life or in the next rebirth or on some subsequent occasion. What he's saying here is you can't run and hide from your gamma, right? Doesn't matter. You can't run and hide. If you make unwise decisions, you're going to experience those unwholesome results, either in this life, in the next life, or some future life. So you can't run and hide. So once you come to this understanding that you're causing all the results in your life, either wholesome or unwholesome. You're causing that. You're creating that. 
then you can't run and hide from your unwise decisions, your unwholesome results. The next question is, well, okay, let me only make wise decisions so I can only experience wholesome results. By the time you get to enlightenment, you're only making wise decisions. You're only experiencing wholesome results. You're no longer experiencing any unwholesome results because you're only making wise decisions in the world. So you're extinguishing all your unwholesome results by making wise decisions. Abi, you have a question? All right, we have some mics here because we have people online that are joining us. So we're using mics to, to be able to help them here. There's a little switch on the front. Thank you, yes. Um, question I have is, how is it decided when the result will come through? There's no being that's deciding that. It's just based on this natural law, it's just going to happen when it happens, right? So I'm about to talk to you about what's called old gamma and new gamma, and then also wholesome and unwholesome gamma, but there's no specific time frame of exactly when it's going to happen. Some things can happen, you know, pretty readily, pretty quickly. Some things are much longer. So for example, say I file a taxes and I lie on the taxes. That karma might come back to you one year, two years, three years later, right? But you can also experience it more readily. Maybe it gets caught right away, but you're going to experience the result of that at some point. So there's nobody or nothing that determines when it occurs, but it is going to occur. Yeah, like adjacent anyway, like on the, on the, on the way here, I walked through Tappy Gate and the bird shat on me. <laughs> it's like... <laughs> What did I do wrong? <laughs> Can you I'm, think of what I'm like not that? understanding you. I, uh, so on the way here this morning, okay, uh, I w- walked through Tappy Gate with okay. all the birds, and one bird shot on my neck. I see right here. Okay, and I was thinking, ah, oh, what did I do now? That kind of thing. Can you think about it like that? Or yeah, that was yeah. the result of your decisions. You chose to walk through an area <laughs> that. That's, that's your decision. Yeah, yeah, yeah well, okay, yeah, yeah. Did, did anybody else? Yeah, but it didn't shit did on it, all the people that were there. Right, but that was a result of your decisions. Everything you experience is a result okay, of your decisions. Yeah. So I should you never chose be to walk through an area I... where birds were, right? It's not, yeah, remember, yeah, yeah. it's not punishments and rewards. Okay. You're not being punished for anything. It's just a sequence yeah. of events. I feel like it was a it's cause and effect. Result, in a way, but What's that? I felt like it was an unwholesome result that I didn't want. Yeah, because you walk through an area where there's animals, right? So in the future, if you're not interested in that occurring, uh-huh. you could walk a different way, but it depends how much yeah, of an issue this is. Yeah, you can also just walk anywhere and just a bird flying way yeah, above you. And exactly. You live in a world with other beings. Okay. You're going to encounter interaction with yeah, other okay. beings. So you should, I don't know, you should never really do anything then. <laughs> well... This is impermanence, right? You're not going to be able to permanently walk in the world without contact from other beings. The natural law of gamma, when I talk about you make wise decisions and you experience wholesome results, it doesn't mean that you always get what you want, right? If you don't ever want a bird to poop on you, then don't ever walk under a bird. But the birds are going to be over you, right? Because you're walking in a world, you're in a world where there's other beings. So when we talk about wise decisions that lead to wholesome results, it doesn't mean that everybody around you is going to do exactly what you want them to do. You're still living in an impermanent world, right? You just need to understand impermanence and be understood. Okay, I got poop on me. Okay, let me get rid of that. I walked down the street. There was some birds here. I saw the birds. I just walked right through and they were resting. They were on the street and then they flew when I walked past them. And then, yeah, they pooped on you. No big deal. Just impermanence, right? So it doesn't mean that everything's going to happen the way you want it to happen. 
But, but all when all it does experience. happen, when you do get poop on you, okay, don't get discontent about it. But all our, all our experiences is a sequence of the karma, anyway. It's a sequence of events. Yeah. It's one thing leads to another, leads to another. And the more you can see that sequencing of events and how that's occurring, then you make wise decisions that produce wholesome outcomes. So if you never, ever, ever, ever are interested in getting pooped on, then you should avoid birds by all means. But then you can understand that you may be in an area where there's a bird up there and you just didn't notice it. So it's possible for you to potentially get pooped on at some point. But it wasn't God that uh, punished me. No, there's, there's, no, <laughs> there's no entity like God or, or the universe that's saying like, okay, let's put some poop on this guy. No, it's the result of your decisions. It's the cause and effect or action and result. And if you would like to stop having birds poop on you, get to enlightenment so that you won't keep being reborn. You won't keep coming back, right? Yeah. <laughs> as long as you're born, you're going to keep experiencing birth, aging, sickness, and death, and birds pooping on you. <laughs> okay, so you guys understand these two teachings, right? You carry all your own karma, and you can't run and hide from it, right? So you're going to experience it. Okay, so there's four types of gamma that you need to understand. There's wholesome gamma and unwholesome gamma. And then there's old gamma and there's new gamma. What wholesome gamma is, is any results of your decisions where the decision was harmless. If you make a harmless decision, it's going to produce wholesome results in your life. Okay, if you make a harmful decision, then it's going to produce unwholesome results in your life. Okay, this is wholesome gamma and unwholesome gamma. Then there's what's called old gamma and new gamma. Old gamma is any decisions that you've made in the past that you're now experiencing the results now in the present moment. And then new gamma is any decisions that you're making now that you're going to experience the results in the future. Okay, so let me give you some examples of this. I think you guys understand wholesome and unwholesome pretty straightforward, right? Harmless decisions and harm full decisions. And that's why in the Eightfold Path, that second step of right intention has that intention of harmlessness. You need to have the intention of harmlessness to, in order to get to enlightenment and now cultivate that through your moral conduct and your mental discipline, which is the rest of that Eightfold Path that we talked about. But this old gamma and new gamma, let me give you some examples of this one. Using that example of filling out a tax form, if I filled out a tax form three years ago and I either made a mistake because maybe my mind wasn't concentrated or I lied, intentionally lied on the government form, now three years later, the government sends me a notice and it says, you made an error on your tax form. The error was $1,000. You owe us $1,000 for the original error, $1,000 for interest, and $1,000 penalty you now owe us $3,000 and you get this notice in the mail. Well, if you didn't understand the teachings of the Buddha and that your role in your life is to extinguish your unwholesome karma and you didn't understand the natural laws of existence, you might get that notice and you might try to run and hide from it. You might try to rip it up, throw it away, or you might try to lie some more, right? You might try to call them up or send them a letter and lie some more, or you might get angry and frustrated and agitated and call them up and cuss them out and get angry that would all be unwise. That's going to produce new karma that is unwholesome because you're causing harm. You're lying. You're being aggressive. You're being hostile. You're creating new karma that is unwholesome. But what you would like to do is you would like to create 
new gamma that is wholesome. So now if you understand the natural laws of existence and you get this letter that says you owe $3,000, if your mind can be calm and you know peaceful, okay, maybe you need a few days, maybe a few weeks to think about it. Maybe you call up the government. Maybe you send them a letter and say, hey, I'm so sorry. I apologize. You're 100% right. I did make an error. I see what you mean. I take full responsibility for this and I would like to figure this out. I don't have $3,000 right now, but is there a way that we can make a payment plan? Right? And you just politely handle this. What you might get back is you might get back, you know what? You're doing such a good job at this. We're going to remove the penalty. We're going to remove the interest payment. You only owe us $1,000. Or they might say, okay, you can pay this $3,000 over payments over the next several months or what have you, right? But if you call and you are bitter and harsh and hostile and aggressive with them, the natural law of gamma is they're not going to be willing to work that out with you. So that's why you would like to create new gamma that is wholesome by practicing the Eightfold Path. It's the Eightfold Path that is going to guide you in how to create wholesome gamma by only making new decisions that are wise. So this old gamma coming back to you, now you have a decision to make in the present moment because you know you need to make new gamma or whatever decisions you're going to make, it's going to create new gamma and you would like it to be wholesome. And if you have the ability to make the decisions in that situation, go ahead and start making decisions. In some situations, a student might reach out to their teacher if they're having a certain significant issue and say, hey, teacher, I'm dealing with this issue. Here's what I'm thinking. Here's how I think I should handle this. How does this sound to you? And you're talking with somebody who knows the natural law of gamma and that can help you. And now you're kind of trying to develop that ability yourself and you might kind of reach out to somebody for help. And that's what we're here to help you for. And then when we share with you, we don't tell you what to do or how to do it. We just say, okay, if you do it this way, here's what you'll experience. If you do it this way, this is what you might experience. And then slowly but surely you learn this natural law of gamma so that that way you don't have to come ask me for every single thing that you're encountering. You cultivate the wisdom yourself more and more to know this natural law of gamma and know how to deal with any particular issue that you might be dealing with. So your old gamma is anything in the past that you've made decisions about and you've made unwise decisions in the past. So you're going to experience those results. But as those results are coming back to you, you would like to, in the present moment, make new decisions that are going to produce wholesome results. And you can't snap your fingers and instantly start making wise decisions because you have craving, anger, and ignorance in your mind. You're going to make unwise decisions. So even if you could, you can't, but even if you could snap your fingers and instantly practice the teachings of the Buddha perfectly right now, you're still going to experience unwholesome results because you've got old decisions that you've made. You've got decisions in the past that now you're going to need to experience that unwholesome gamma coming back to you. And I'm going to give you some examples about this here in a little bit so that you can see this more clearly. Yes, Abhi. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'll get to it. I, I pause at different times for questions. Mm-hmm. Any questions on this? Max, you have a question? Yes. Um... Going back to the example, maybe of like getting uh, pooped on by a bird or something like that, I may be getting ahead of myself or whatnot, but um, so, but is comma directly related? Like, uh, let's say I bullied someone a couple years ago or something like that, but my comma that is produced a bird pooped on me would that be i mean it's 
like related, but that is my comma from my past bad, you know, behavior or whatnot. Okay, so the Buddha teaches this natural law of gamma, and you need to learn it and understand it and be able to make wise decisions that produce wholesome results so you can eliminate your unwise decisions that produce unwholesome results. But he shares that the exact, exact result of gamma, that if you try to understand that, that it would lead to either frustration or madness, right? So you can't say that because I bullied someone in fifth grade, I'm getting pooped on now by a pigeon, right? So it's not that specific. But because of this cause and effect and the sequencing of events, we can clearly see that because you walk through an area where there's lots and lots of pigeons, and then when you walk through, it disrupted them, and then they flew over your head, and now, of course, one of them pooped on you. This is the cause and effect that we can see in that situation. But he's not getting pooped on because of something he did in fifth grade. That would be like such an exact, exact, exact thing that the Buddha shares that it would lead to either frustration or madness if you tried to discern that level of detail. Okay, thank you for explaining that, sir. I appreciate it. Yes, you're welcome. Okay, any other questions on this before we move on? Okay, so now I'm going to share with you how you create wholesome karma and how you create unwholesome karma, which you actually already know from yesterday's discussion. What's creating this unwholesome karma is craving, anger, and ignorance. These three poisons or these three unwholesome roots or these three fires. Whenever you make decisions through craving, which is those selfish desires, the mental longing and strong eagerness, chasing after the objects of your affection, that's going to produce unwholesome results. Whenever you make decisions through anger, that bitterness, the hostility, the resentfulness, that's going to produce unwholesome results. Whenever you make decisions through this ignorance or the unknowing of true reality, when you lack wisdom of the three universal truths, the four noble truths, the eightfold path, the five precepts, all those other teachings that the Buddha shares, the natural law of gamma itself, if you lack wisdom of that, your decisions are based in this unknowing of true reality, this ignorance. So when you lack wisdom, you're going to make decisions through craving, anger, and ignorance. And now when you put that out into the world, those decisions are going to produce harmful effects. And now you're going to experience unwholesome results. Okay. So this is how you create unwholesome gamma. And these are the words of the Buddha. He's explaining it to you, what creates unwholesome gamma. And then the way that you create wholesome gamma is through the opposites, those wholesome roots that we were talking about, the generosity, the loving kindness, and the wisdom. These are the exact opposites of craving anger and ignorance. Because when you're craving, the mind's holding on and you're having all this selfishness. The exact opposite of that is generosity, where you're giving and sharing without any expectation of anything in return. If you have anger, bitterness, hostility, aggression, the opposite of that is loving kindness, that genuine interest in seeing all beings be well, the active goodwill. Then the ignorance or the unknowing of true reality, the opposite of that is wisdom. The way you get to wisdom is through learning, through reflecting to independently verify the teachings, and then you practice them. So this is why whenever you hear your mind or you're talking about belief, you're never interested in any belief whatsoever. By the time you get to enlightenment, you've eliminated all your beliefs that you don't have any beliefs because with a belief, you don't know what's true or false. So what you're looking to get to is you're looking to eliminate your beliefs, but you're doing that through bringing in wisdom. So you're not just blindly getting rid of some beliefs and then bringing in other beliefs. The teachings of the Buddha aren't to be believed. 
The Buddha never taught to believe anything at all. So that's why you're learning, you're reflecting to independently verify, and then you're practicing. And when you see the truth, you've acquired wisdom. So you're going to need to move out certain things that you believe right now, right? So that's why when I'm teaching you in classes and you hear things that's opposite of what your mind currently is thinking, you might have to reflect on some of those things that I'm sharing. You're not going to necessarily get it right away when I'm sharing something like the universal truth of non-self, for example, since you guys were talking about that earlier, or like yesterday when we were talking about euthanasia, or when I was talking about gaslighting with the lady that was here yesterday, all these different things that you've heard in other places as you're learning something new, you would like to learn it. You would like to reflect on it, to independently verify it, and then practice to be able to see the truth. So by bringing in this wisdom, you're getting rid of any kind of beliefs that you have so that now you know the truth about all these different topics. So that's what's going to lead to the wholesome karma is that when you're making decisions through generosity, through loving kindness and wisdom. So anytime you're experiencing an unwholesome result, you can trace it back to craving, anger, and ignorance. Not just you, but anything in the world. Even global conflict is all based in craving, anger, and ignorance because global conflict is based on human beings making decisions. So let's just take something that people oftentimes ask me questions about is like a war. Even a war is based in craving, anger, and ignorance. This is the way that wars typically happen is, hey, you've got some land that I want. I want that land. That's my land. Give me that land. Give me, give me, give me. And the other people say, nope. That's our land. You can't have it. Now you're not getting your craving fulfilled. If you would have got your craving fulfilled, you would have got pleasant feelings, happy, but you didn't get your craving fulfilled. So you got angry. So now this anger arises, this bitterness, this hostility, this aggression. So now I'm going to send my soldiers into your land and I'm going to kill you guys. And I'm going to try to fear you into giving me my craving. I'm putting my expectation on you, right? I'm going to put my expectation on you. I'm going to try to use fear for you to be able to fulfill my craving. So now with this craving that has arisen, now with this anger that has arisen, where is it all coming from? It's coming from the ignorance, the unknowing of true reality. When in reality, if you would have practiced generosity, loving kindness, and wisdom, then you can experience wholesome results. So even global conflict is all being caused by craving, anger, and ignorance. So when more and more people in the world have purified their mind of craving, anger, and ignorance, and are practicing generosity, loving kindness, and wisdom, each individual will start seeing that their life becomes more and more peaceful and more joyful. Okay, so this is how you produce wholesome karma is through generosity, loving kindness and wisdom. But because your mind currently has craving, anger and ignorance, and you're gradually going to be bringing that down, you're going to be making unwise decisions. Even from this point forward, you're going to still be making unwise decisions, but you're trying to make less and less and less of those. And you're trying to bring up your generosity, loving kindness and wisdom more and more and more. All right. So let me explain to you how to eliminate your unwholesome karma and extinguish this, because that's what you're doing on the path to enlightenment is you're gaining more and more wisdom to be able to extinguish your unwholesome karma. So it's the eightfold path that is going to allow you to extinguish your unwholesome karma by learning and practicing this and dialing it into your life closer and closer. The Buddha is guiding you about how to make wise decisions around your 
moral conduct and around your mental discipline. The way that you extinguish all your unwholesome decisions is only make wise decisions. But because you've made unwise decisions in the past, you're going to experience unwholesome results. Even if you could snap your fingers and instantly start practicing the teachings of the Buddha perfectly, which you can't, but even if you could, you're still going to experience unwholesome results. So the way that I think about it is in the past, and even now to a certain degree, you're going to still do this, is you've been putting mud into the garden hose. You've got this garden hose, you've been putting mud into it, and you've been putting mud into it, and you've been putting mud into it. But now what you're doing is you're choosing to hook this garden hose up to the faucet. And when you hook this garden hose up to the faucet, you're going to open up the faucet and start putting some clean water into this garden hose. You're going to start maybe coming to the temple. You're going to read books. You're going to consult with a teacher. You're going to be doing meditations. You're going to be doing these different things. And this is putting clean water into the garden hose. And if you only came to the temple once a year, once every six months, okay, you've got a little drip going into your garden hose. Or if you meditate once a month, you got like a little drip going into your garden hose. It's going to take many lifetimes to clean out this garden hose. But if you open up that faucet wider and wider and wider, where you're coming to the temple regularly, or you're joining online, you're reading books, you're meditating regularly, you're building up your practice, you're going to get more and more clean water coming into this garden hose. Well, even when you're putting this clean water into the garden hose, it's going to spit mud for a while. It's going to spit mud because you've put all this mud in the garden hose in the past. But eventually you're going to see a little blast of clean water come through. But then it's going to be some more mud and some more mud and some more mud. Then you're going to get some clean water and more mud. And then you're going to get clean water, clean water, clean water, mud, mud, mud. So over time, as you put more and more clean water into this garden hose, eventually you're going to get only clean water coming out of this garden hose. That's when the mind is enlightened, that you're not experiencing any unwholesome results anymore. Your mind is completely peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. That doesn't mean other people don't do things, right? Like you could, as an enlightened being, you could still have someone gossip about you. Someone might gossip and slander you to other people, but your mind isn't going to be discontent about that, right? But these things can occur, but that's coming from that person's craving, anger, and ignorance. It's not coming from yours. It's coming from their mind, right? So you can maintain your peacefulness. You can maintain your joy regardless of what's going on in the world. The world's not going to function perfectly for you just because you're enlightened. The world's still impermanent. Things are still happening through craving, anger, and ignorance, but you can maintain your joy. So just because you're enlightened doesn't mean all the wars are going to stop, right? There's still going to be war but you can maintain your peacefulness and joy despite that that war is occurring because you understand that this is impermanence and that you don't have the ability to stop that war. That war is from somebody else's craving, anger, and ignorance. It's not from yours, but you've already purified your mind of craving, anger, and ignorance. So you are making decisions through the Eightfold Path, right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. You dial this in closer and closer, and your mind starts performing more and more optimally, and you're making wiser and wiser decisions. So now, as these unwholesome gamma is coming back to you from your past decisions, instead of doing something unwise with a lack of wisdom, you start practicing the Eightfold Path. So when this letter comes to you from the government and says, hey, you owe us money, Instead of lying and cheating or being angry and hostile and bitter, you start to understand, no, that's not going to help me. I need to extinguish this unwholesome gamma. I can't run and hide from it. So let me call them up. Let me send them a letter. Let me be polite. Let me be kind and let me handle this. And I'm going to extinguish this. And now you can extinguish it. 
I'll give you another example. Before I was learning these teachings, I was a pretty bitter and hostile and harsh guy at different times, right? And of course, I met my wife in 2007. And as we were together, of course, I was nice and polite and friendly at different times. But at different times, I was, you know, kind of mean and angry and bitter and harsh. And I did that throughout our relationship. But then at a certain point, I decided, you know what? I'm going to stop doing this. I'm going to train my mind. I'm going to do things better. And I started training my mind. And I got to the point where my mind was peaceful. And I was no longer arguing with her. I was no longer yelling at her. I was no longer doing all these things. But even though I had transformed my mind, I had made some unwise decisions in the past. I had been bitter and harsh and hostile with her. So for about a year and a half, she was still being bitter and hostile and harsh with me, right? Where in the past, when she would pick up the rubber ball of anger and hatred and throw it around the room, I would pick it up and throw it around the room and she would pick it up and throw it around the room and I would pick it up and throw it around the room. Next thing you know, we got all these balls bouncing around in the room with this bitterness and hostility and anger. And we would just be angry at each other at different times. But now I was doing something different because I understood the natural law of gamma. I understood the eightfold path. When she would pick up the rubber ball of anger and she would throw it around the room, I knew the last thing I was interested in doing was being angry and bitter back. Because if I put that out, that's what was going to come back to me. So when she would pick up that ball and bounce it around, I would just watch it roll to the corner and lose its energy. Right? So I needed to practice. I needed to do something differently. Where in the past, I would be bitter and harsh and hostile right back with her. Instead, I started doing things differently. In some cases, I would just walk away. She would be bitter and harsh and hostile with me, and I would just walk away. In other cases, she would be bitter and harsh and hostile with me. And I would just sit there and I would smile. And I would say, anything else, dear? Anything else? I was like, get it all out. Come on. Do all the yelling. Come on. I know. I knew it was my unwholesome karma because I'd done all that yelling to her at different times. So I would tell her, come on, give it to me. Come on. Everything you would like to say, go ahead, say it. And then she would say it and I would say, okay, thank you, dear. And then I'd walk away, right? Eventually, after a year and a half, she extinguished her anger. Right? I had extinguished my unwholesome karma. This was my unwholesome karma coming back to me. And she had extinguished her unwholesome karma. Now, for many, many years, we don't argue. We're not frustrated with each other. We're not upset with each other. But that was work that she had to do and work that I had to do. And individuals in our relationships, there's going to need to be work done. So as you're developing your relationships, there's certain relationships that you have right now that are bitter and harsh and hostile that you're not committed to that you're going to just need to move on from. And you're going to choose like, I'm not willing to do the work. There's too much work to do. They're not going to be willing to do the work. And you just let go of the relationship and you move on. You don't need to tell them. You don't need to confront them. You just choose to let go and move on, right? There's other relationships that you're more committed to. Like with my wife, I was committed to this relationship. I was interested in seeing it go well. So I stayed in the relationship and I did the work and she did the work. And now we have a wonderful relationship. Never angry, never bitter, never upset. We'll disagree with each other on certain topics, but now we sit down and talk about it and we discuss it. Where before we'd be angry, we'd yell and holler at each other until I got my way or until she got her way, right? So now we don't do that. We do something different. So now we have this wonderful relationship where we're always peaceful and loving and kind to each other. So there's certain relationships that you'll do that with. But then there's a third category of relationship where these are people you haven't even met yet. You've never even met them, but you will at some point in the future. And now you're only ever going to be loving and kind to those people. And that's the only thing that's going to come back to you in that relationship. 
So these are the three types of relationships. Relationships that you're going to move on from and choose to let go of. Relationships you're committed to that you're going to work it out and they'll probably work it out too. And you guys will do some things over the course of a few years and things will get better. And then there's new relationships that you'll only ever be loving and kind in. Because it's important that you shut down all your craving, anger, and ignorance. And it's just going to take you time to do that. Because not only was I experiencing unwholesome gamma from my wife, but it was starting with my son too. I was noticing my son was starting to talk to his mom in unwholesome ways and unwise ways. And occasionally he would talk to me that way. So not only did I need to help my wife and I started helping her see the teachings of the Buddha more and more clearly, I needed to teach my son too in order to extinguish this gamma so that now he has a wonderful relationship with his mom. They don't argue. They're not upset and yelling at each other. Same thing between me and my son, never upset, never arguing and yelling at each other, right? We just have a family that talks and has discussions and everything is so peaceful and joyful in our home. But that came with work through the Eightfold Path. In the Eightfold Path, there aren't rules that we're following. It's guidance that's going to train you to get rid of the craving, anger, and ignorance in your mind that is producing the unwise decisions. And then you can practice generosity, loving kindness, and wisdom. There's still times where I ask my son, hey, can you put away the dishes? And he says, yeah, I'll put them away later tonight. Right? And then, okay, fine. You put them away whenever you like. And then I wake up the next morning and he hasn't put them away yet right? This is impermanence. He's not going to permanently do every single thing I ask of him just because of a rule, right? That's not how you get your home to be peaceful. You don't create a bunch of rules and then everybody follows the rules. The way you get your home to be peaceful and your life and your relationships to be peaceful is you eliminate your craving, anger, and ignorance. And if the people around you are choosing to do that work too, that's when life becomes really peaceful. But even if nobody else around you is doing the work, If you do the work to eliminate your craving, anger, and ignorance, you'll get to peacefulness. Everyone else will be suffering. Everybody else will be having all kinds of difficulties, but your mind will be peaceful, right? So that's how you clean up your gamma, is you extinguish it through practicing the Eightfold Path in your personal and your professional relationships everywhere from the moment you wake up to the moment you go to sleep, you learn how to practice the Eightfold Path more and more. Initially, it can be challenging because you're trying to upgrade your operating system in your mind. It's just like a computer. You're trying to upgrade this operating system from unenlightened 1.0 to enlightened 9.0, right? And as you upgrade your operating system, it's a challenge to figure out where all those icons are and where did they move this setting to and where did they move that setting to. But eventually, once you get up and running on that new software, it's like, oh my goodness, this is so much easier. Why didn't they do it this way originally? That's what you're going to think when you get to enlightenment. You'll think, oh my goodness, why wasn't I doing this my whole life? This is so much easier. It's so effortless, right? But on the way to that, it's going to be a challenge because your mind doesn't have the wisdom yet. It has that craving, anger, and ignorance. So as you transform your mind, you'll see that you'll be able to make wiser and wiser decisions. And you'll be able to extinguish all your unwholesome karma through training the mind, which is going to include, you know, learning from a teacher, reading books, meditating, and all these different things. So any questions on extinguishing your unwholesome karma and how you would like to do that through making decisions from the Eightfold Path? Okay, no questions, right? Okay, so let's go on and talk about this topic, which is laws of society. Because sometimes when we talk about the natural law of gamma, somebody's like, hold on a second. You said you can't run and hide from your gamma, but there's that guy that had blood in his house and blood on his car. And, you know, he went to court and got found not guilty. Isn't that running and hiding from your gamma? The answer is no. 
the laws of society can't be created, administered, and enforced fairly because they're run by humans and humans are prone to error. They're prone to mistake. So the laws of society are very different than the natural law of gamma. The natural law of gamma is functioning at a much higher level. And the laws of society are oftentimes down here. If you're functioning based on the natural law of gamma, you'll never have any problems with any government because you're functioning at a much higher level with the natural laws of gamma. But these laws of society, they're part of your gamma, but they're not your entire gamma. So using this example of somebody who maybe had blood in their house, blood in their car, their bloody footprint was at the murder scene or what have you, that person can't run and hide from their gamma. They're going to experience the results of their decisions. Even though they were found not guilty in the court of law amongst human beings, that's not their entire gamma. They're still experiencing results that you may or may not be seeing and you may or may not be looking at. So you don't have to get your mind all worked up and think that this person somehow isn't experiencing their gamma. So let me point out to you and share with you other ways that people are experiencing gamma, even if they were found not guilty by a court of law, they're still going to be experiencing these consequences where jail and punishment isn't 100% of their gamma. They can experience a bad reputation in the community. They can experience sickness, disease, physical and mental pain. They can experience a shorter lifespan. They're going to have a certain amount of hostility, aggression, which is going to lead to fights and potentially being killed. So if you have enough craving and anger and ignorance in your mind that you kill another human being and you've actually killed this person and you went to court and you were found not guilty, that craving, anger and ignorance isn't going to be eliminated from the mind through going to court and being found not guilty. You still have craving, anger and ignorance in your mind. So all your relationships and the way that you interact in the world, it's still through craving, anger and ignorance. So you're going to be found not guilty. Okay. You didn't go to jail or prison, but you're still going to be out in the world functioning through this craving, anger and ignorance. And all your relationships are going to be problematic because you're functioning through that craving, anger and ignorance. So you're going to have this hostility and aggression that's coming back to you and you're getting in fights and potentially getting killed as well. You can have a loss of income and wealth because people aren't interested in hiring you for a job. You can experience difficulties in your relationships. Securing and progressing in employment can be difficult. Securing housing and acquiring basic necessities to sustain life. These is all the results of your decisions. Having this craving, anger, and ignorance in the mind, someone who is found not guilty, they're still experiencing these kinds of things. And then ultimately, the unwholesome karma that's being experienced is discontentedness and rebirth. Discontentedness in this case might be guilt or shame or fear. If somebody has killed and now they were found not guilty, they can still have guilt, shame, and fear in their mind that's coming back to them and having all these difficulties in their relationships. And they can also experience rebirth. If they don't get to enlightenment in this life, they can potentially experience rebirth into other realms possibly the hell realm, the animal realm, the afflicted spirit realm, or or another realm, right? So the gamma that one is experiencing isn't just the court system and going to prison. So you can be assured that anybody who is making unwise decisions, they're going to experience those unwholesome results. But also if you're making wise decisions, you're going to experience those results as well. So you guys have been making wise decisions to learn the teachings of the Buddha, to meditate. Perhaps you're making friends 
all these people here seem to be very wholesome. You guys are into wholesome things. You guys are making all these great friends. You're meditating. Your mind's becoming more peaceful, more joyful. You're learning wisdom to be able to go out into the world and make wiser decisions about your life. This is producing wholesome gamma for you because it's based in wisdom. And you're not making any harmful decisions. You're making harmless decisions. Coming to the temple, choosing to meditate, choosing to learn, this is all harmless decisions. That's why it's producing wholesome results for you. But if you went out into the parking lot of the temple and you kicked a dog, this is harmful decisions, and now unwholesome karma is going to come back to you, right? So it's not just about going to the temple. It's your moral conduct while you're there, right? For example. So as you're making wise decisions based on the natural law of karma, you'll experience wholesome results. As you make unwise decisions, you'll experience unwholesome results. But prison and these laws of society, it's not 100% of one's karma. So if you see the news and someone is found not guilty that you think should be guilty, you don't have to get all angry and upset. Or if there's someone that you think should be not guilty and they're found guilty, you don't need to get all upset about that either because it's their gamma. It's the results of their decisions. It's not your decisions. It's their decisions. So you can't run and hide from this. Okay. Any questions? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, the the relationship between sort of government and uh, the, the law of karma. So for example, uh, in some of the countries throughout, well, maybe mo- mostly the Western countries, but if you're a young male and the government decides to go to war and you refuse to participate, mm-hmm. you might go to jail, right? Mm-hmm. Even though that you are, um, you want to be peaceful and don't want to mm-hmm. fight or kill. Mm-hmm. Uh, how would you sort of yep, say that? that? that so, so that's your karma coming back at you by being arrested by the government? Yes, that's the result of your decisions because you chose to live in a country that is making war mandatory. That's your choice. So everything that you choose to do is going to produce a result in your life. So just like me, right? Like I grew up in a country that, at least in the environment that I was in, it was quite bitter and quite harsh and there was a lot of hostility in that environment. And of course, at that time, I was putting that out. So that's why it was coming back to me. And I grew up in a country where these teachings didn't really exist much. So I made the choice to come to a place like Thailand where these teachings are more deeply rooted, which allowed me to then learn these teachings and then experience different results. So we all make decisions that affect us. So even in that situation, an individual is still making a certain choice and it's producing a certain result. So there's a student who studies with me who actually had that happen where they got drafted into the military and they didn't want to go to the military, but they went anyway. But when they went, even though they were out there with a gun, they never shot it. They never threw any grenades. They would never kill anybody. And they did it in such a way that the people around them didn't know that that's what they were doing. And this person's still alive where a lot of his friends died because they were killing. He chose not to kill. And even though he went away to war and he was drafted and forced to do that, he's still alive, right? So if you choose to cause harm, harm's going to come to you. So even with the law of society, your government can tell you to go to war and kill and we won't prosecute you for murder. If you come home and kill, we're going to prosecute you for murder. This is where the imperfect nature of human laws are. You can see that. Because if you go to war, you can't escape the natural law of gamma. That's where you can get killed yourself. So if you're killing, 
you can potentially be killed or injured. You can have a traumatic injury, uh, amputation. Uh, you can commit suicide. You can get addicted to drugs and alcohol as a result of what you did in a war. So the government, they can tell you, go kill, but you can't escape the natural law of gamma. You're still going to be affected by it. I just can't remember the other word we said for rebirth. The other word? Oh, uh, yeah. the cycle of new existence. New this existence. is a better way to think well, yeah, about yeah. it. Yeah, mm. yeah. Um, I was just thinking about like, and like past lives implies that it's your past life. Anyway, so just trying to reframe um, that. So cool. Thank you. Um, and I did have a question on the previous topic. Um, I feel like a few days ago you mentioned that an enlightened being can feel joy and peace with all beings. Mm -hmm. um, but from what I heard just before you mentioned, like, you know, if it's not worth it in like some relationships, you just cut them off and walk away. I just was wondering that felt a little bit contradictory. Uh, no, what I was saying is on your way to enlightenment, that there are certain relationships that you have now that you might decide to let go of right? And move on from on your way to enlightenment. And then there's certain relationships that you currently have that you would work out and that you're going to clean up your mind and they're going to do some work and you guys will clean up that relationship. And now there's new relationships that you haven't even created yet that you're only ever going to be loving and kind in those relationships. By the time you get to enlightenment, you can be loving and kind to anybody, no matter what. Even if somebody did something harsh and aggressive and hostile or, or defamed you or, or gossiped or slandered, you can be loving and kind to that individual. That doesn't mean that you will choose to be in a relationship with them though, mm. right? So if there was somebody like bitter and harsh and hostile around me, I wouldn't be angry at them. I wouldn't be upset with them. I wouldn't have any negative emotions towards them. In fact, if they were like that and they would still like to come here and learn, they can come here and learn because this is exactly what they need to transform their mind. But you might just choose, like if we're walking outside together and this person started being bitter and harsh and aggressive and hostile, I might be like, you know what? I'm going to go over here and you take care and I'll see you later, perhaps. Or I might say, hey, would you like to sit down and talk about this so that you can let go of some of this anger? So you're going to handle the situation in any particular way. But by the time you get to enlightenment, you can be loving and kind with everybody and harmoniously with everybody. But that doesn't mean everybody can be loving and kind to you right? But on your way to enlightenment, depending on what your past decisions have been, let's just say you have like 200 friends right now. And let's just say 80% of those relationships are hostile and aggressive and harsh and bitter. Well, if you hold on to those relationships, you're going to find it really challenging to get to enlightenment because you've got like 160 people around you that are harsh and bitter and hostile. What you could do in order to clean up your gamma is let go of those 160 relationships, focus on the 40 that you currently have and clean those up and then make all these new relationships where you're only ever loving and kind. But even though I use that high number, I just use it to illustrate a point, right? You probably have maybe three hostile relationships right now, or you might have, you know, 10 hostile relationships. I don't know. Everybody's a little bit different, but in those relationships where it's challenging for you and it's challenging for them, you're going to need to decide, do I let go of this relationship and move on? Am I committed to working it out? And then of course there's these new relationships. So by the time you get to enlightenment, you've already let go of all the hostile relationships 
by the time you get to enlightenment, you've only got these improved relationships that you now are only loving and kind in, and you only have these new relationships where you're loving and kind. But by the time you get to enlightenment, if you happen to encounter one of those people that you decided to move on in your relationship with, you can be loving and kind with them. That's why you don't have to go to them and confront them and say, hey, Barbara, by the way, I can't be your friend anymore. Here's all the reasons why. Boom, 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 boom. All you're doing is listing out your cravings. You're not doing this. You're not doing this. I want you to do this. And you're not doing that. And you're not doing this. And you're not doing this. You're just listing out all your expectations. And now Barbara is going to get very angry because of her cravings. And now when you see her later, she's going to be angry and hostile and bitter to you. So the way that you clean up your gamma is if you have hostile relationships now, you don't have to go to them and confront them. You just choose to gradually move on. And now a year later, two years later, five years later, 10 years later, if you're enlightened and, or even if you're not, you happen to run into Barbara. Hey, Barbara, how you're doing? Right? You didn't have this confrontation where you told her all the things that you think are wrong with her because that's just judging her and that's just your ego and that's just you listing out your cravings. Yeah. So you would like to just gradually walk away from any of those relationships to give you more time to do your meditation, to focus on the Eightfold Path, to train your mind. So this is like what the Buddha did, right? Like the Buddha went away from the world for a period of time. Jesus Christ did the same thing. Prophet Muhammad did the same thing. This is the way that you clean up your gamma is you need to let go of certain relationships. But by the time you get to enlightenment, you can be loving and kind with everybody in the world. And, and would you say, obviously, there's certain elements of um, hostile and anger, angry relationships, um, obviously going up to like abuse and stuff, but would it perhaps be a good idea to train the mind with people that still are unwholesome, but you know that that's their actions and you have a choice based on your how you perceive them? So if you can come from a place of loving kindness, mm-hmm. you can still be in relation with this person and just understand that like if if they're bringing up unwholesome feelings for you that's your based on you yeah and so a bit of a training ground to kind of really take that accountability and understand so underlying all of the teachings of the buddha which is based on the natural law of gamma is this discernment that we were talking about the other day, wise decision-making. You need to get to this wise decision-making. So if you have a certain relationship, and let's just say this person is physically abusive, it's unwise to be in that relationship, right? Because your physical safety is compromised, right? It's wiser to move on from the relationship. But let's just say you have a really good friend who's been your friend for five or 10 years, and they're just kind of irritable and grumpy and you know, agitated sometimes. It's not affecting you. You can train your mind to be peaceful and loving, even though they're grumpy and agitated. So you don't need to move on from this relationship necessarily, The way that you get to peacefulness is not by making sure everyone else around you is peaceful, right? That's not how you, that's not how you get to peacefulness. And if you only ever were friends with enlightened beings, you're going to have very few friends in your life because right now there's very few enlightened beings in the world. So you're going to have people that are having craving, anger, and ignorance in your life, but you can make decisions in such a way that their decisions aren't affecting you. So in the example of like making a friend who's a drug dealer, 
in my opinion, this would be very unwise. You're not judging that person. You're not looking down on them. You're not thinking of them as wholesome or unwholesome or bad or good or anything like that. You just realize for your life, it's unwise to hang out with this person, even though they might've been a friend since you were 10 years old, right? Because if you're in a car driving down the road and the police pull you over, they've got some cocaine in their pocket, they might slip it under your chair and now you're going to jail or like the example of getting shot or murdered as you're walking down the street. So you're not judging that person thinking that they're bad or, or anything like that just for your life and the decisions that you're making, you're choosing. It would be wise for me to not have a friend who's a drug dealer. So there are certain decisions that as you learn this natural law of gamma, you can see that, Oh, because they're choosing to do that and I'm choosing to be their friend that will affect me. But in this other situation, oh, they're choosing to do those things. I can make decisions so that those things don't affect me and we can maintain our friendship and we can maintain our relationship. And now you can just go forward. And that's where you really start to understand this natural law of gamma really closely about the decisions you're making that is producing any particular result. Mm -hmm. Any other questions that you guys have? Okay. So what I'm going to do then is end our discussion on the natural law of gamma here. And let's take a little break. It's, uh, let's see, it's uh, 1140. Are you guys up for early lunch? Would you guys like an early lunch? How about we do that? Okay, so let's break here at uh, 1140. And let's come back at, um, can we come back at 1230? That'll give us a 50 minute lunch. And then that way, what we'll do is we'll talk about what is merit. And then after that, we have some other discussions about continued support on the path to enlightenment. And then we have the activity that we're going to do this afternoon. So I'll see you guys at 1230. Okay. All right. Thank you so much for your questions in the discussion. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit BuddhaDailyWisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment. Enlightenment.